This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 14. Episode 6. This is Writing Excuses, fantasy and science fiction races. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Dan. I'm Howard. And I'm Mahatab. And we are going to be talking about world building, fantasy, and science fiction races. Before we dive into this episode, I wanted to bring up a potential pitfall um, in dealing with this. And that is, very naturally, as you write, you are going to other your alien races. And in so doing, by making them different from yourself, you are probably going to start to naturally code them um, by giving them characteristics that are very similar to Earth races and Earth people. You can see this uh, famously in George Lucas's prequel trilogy about the Star Wars, where he takes the person who is the, uh, the merchant and he codes this person by the way he speaks and the way he looks as Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, this is dangerous, and it is something you're going to naturally do because of the biases you have, because of the world we live in. Um, we have an entire episode coming up in May, on May 26th, where we talk about this. Dan and Tempest talk about writing the other and kind of a giving permission, giving yourself permission to do this, even though you will probably get it wrong at times. Yeah. We think it is important to be trying to reach and stretch. Exactly. It, it is more important— you know, obviously you need to do it right, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't try. Um, put in the work, do your effort. We've got a huge slate of writing the other podcast this season, and we'll let those episodes cover this. Right now, we're going to move on and just talk about cool fantasy and science fiction races. Yep. So taking that huge can of worms and setting it to the side as a real issue that you should be thinking about and researching about, we're going to turn slightly the other direction and just talk about um, building fantasy and science fiction races. And I kind of want to put you put on the spot, Howard, because That's I love <laughs> your science fiction races. This I, is something you are really, really good at. I How? am flattered and terrified. Hmm. Uh, a large part of, of this grows out of the realization early on that calling for anybody to call Sergeant Schlock, you know, the, the amorphous, the carbosilicate amorph, Anybody calling him an alien uh, is, well, they are alien to him. There are other aliens. At one point, I made the joke where, you know, Schlock, don't you have any alien superpowers? He's like, you guys are all aliens. Do you have any alien superpowers? Um, And that's the easy version of that joke, and I never get to tell it again. Um, what What I had to wrap my head around is that I need all of these aliens to function as people that can tell the story in a way that I don't have to use a lot of words because I'm a cartoonist. I have to take some <laughs> shortcuts. I have to give them all eyebrows. The uniocs, you know, the guys with the great big one yeah. eye have two eyebrows. Why? Because I need two eyebrows. They don't need two <laughs> eyebrows. I do. And so there are compromises there that I have made. But fundamentally, what I am trying to do every time I introduce an alien, my first thought is not, what cool superpowers does this alien have? It is, how does this alien see the world differently than other people? And is that important to the story? Um, As I've been working on prose, uh, Dragons of Damashuri, 
which is, uh, uh, it was my nano project in 2018. Um, and I didn't finish it because it needs more than 50,000 words. And I didn't get to 50,000. So it needs more than 28,000 words. Um, but that book, every time I mentioned an alien, I realized I don't have any pictures to work with. I have to give the reader enough so that when we mention that this is an alien, when they do something, they feel alien without feeling incomprehensible and without feeling like I've just mapped them onto uh, onto some aspect of humanity. And fundamentally, with the alien races, from that standpoint, humanity is all one race. Right. People of color, people of whatever, we're all one race. Um, you know, Howard, that's something very interesting that you mentioned because you said you need the two eyebrows, especially because you have to show them. Now, that just makes me think about what if I just wanted to make an alien a blob of, you know, an amoebic substance, but then how would I make them relatable to the readers? Like it's, it's, it's kind of a, um, you know, two sides of the coin. You mm -hmm. want to make an alien not like a human being, you know, they yeah. could have three or four arms, they could have five legs, but you know, you have a head, you have a body so that the readers can relate to it. But if you did not, and if you just had it made into a blob, then, you know, how do you, sh you know, show expression or, you know, well, it, it won't mm -hmm. be illustrated, but, but, you know, that's what I always wonder. What if I wanted to make something so weird that no one's ever seen it before, but then how do they relate to it? The trick that I'm using in Dragons of Damashuri, and it's, it's comedy. And so I can, uh, I can freewheel a little bit. My point of view character is an artificial intelligence who has a physical avatar body and who wants to fit in and wants to understand people and recognizes that everybody has different body language. And so periodically an alien will do something with its ears or it will take the two eyes on stocks and look at each other, which I took from Larry Niven, but any alien with eyes on stocks is going to do that. And Lou, the protagonist, she, she either knows what it means or she doesn't know what it means or she's guessing. And she knows that it's important. And so as I'm describing these things, uh, these are becoming people who feel things and who mm -hmm. do things that mean things. And our protagonist is trying to figure it out and trying to react to it. You know, an author who did very alien aliens very well was Ursula K. Le Guin. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that she did in uh, several of her stories and books was um, you know, she would present these incredibly bizarre things that, you know, we almost don't know how to relate to them, but she would explain what was important to them. And then we would watch them try to achieve that goal or overcome that obstacle. And that process is incredibly relatable. And so even though we don't necessarily understand who they are or where they're coming from, we know what it's like to try to get something mm -hmm. that you want. We know that it's like to lose something that you love. And so those aspects can still come out. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a good point. Yeah. And um, next week, we'll delve into this a little bit more because our how topic weird is, is weird. how weird is too weird. But I yeah. did want to talk about this idea a mm -hmm. little bit about, um, like, for instance, uh, one thing in my writing group that uh, a friend of mine always will point out is um, he hates it in in books when they use something that's not a horse to be a horse. Now, personally, <laughs> I kind of like that, right? Um, but where do you guys fall on this? When do you just call a horse a horse? When do you call a horse a xyloplik? 
um, which is what they ride on this planet that yeah. in all um, ways is a horse, except it's got scales. Well, see, and for me, that comes down to a lot of the same issues of, of you know, not just animals, but the, the races themselves. Uh, I remember in our old writing class with Dave Wolverton, one of the things he said about kind of the standard Tolkien-esque fantasy is that, you know, what we said at the beginning, elves and dwarves and orcs and stuff are really just kind of earth cultures, super otherized. Um, and how much more interesting is it to just treat them as full cultures? And so they're not just every dwarf is Gimli and has a Scottish accent and an axe, but maybe they like really spicy food. Maybe they have all these other massive facets to their culture that real cultures have that fantasy cultures sometimes don't because they're based on stereotypes. And so with the horse, it's the same thing. If the horse doesn't do anything different than a normal horse, just call it a horse. But... If it has scales, does that mean it's also a lizard? Does that mean that it's cold-blooded and you have to have a completely different kind of stable? Like, there's a lot of interesting roads you can go down if you want to look at that kind of stuff. The movie uh, Avatar it's just yeah. had, the, had the horses, <laughs> except horse. it wasn't a horse because... You because plug you yourself plug into you, it. Yeah, you plug yourself into it. And the place where, for me, that fell short was I want him to be experiencing some of what the horse is experiencing mm -hmm. because now it's not a horse. Now he's got the wind in his nostrils. <laughs> I taste grass. This is so, and now there's a reason for that connection. To Now it's got sense of wonder for me. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Book of the Week this week is Dragon's Blood by Jane Yolen, Grand Master of Sifwa Jane Yolen, one of my favorite writers of all time. Um, I recently reread this book to do a piece on it for Tor.com, and I love this book. It was one of the very first fantasy books I ever read as a kid, and a lot of the stuff in this book went completely over my head, <laughs> but it was my first Boy and His Dragon story, which there are a lot of classic kid and dragon stories, but this one is wonderful. It's about um, a young man who is a slave who works for a wealthy man who owns dragons that fight in pits. 
They're basically cockfights with dragons. Um, and as a kid, this was just awesome. Reading as an adult, I'm like, wow, this is, this is really uncomfortable in ways <laughs> she obviously wanted it to be. Because these are intent, intent, intelligent creatures that they are raising to fight. And the young man's way to get freedom is he's going to steal an egg, which in this culture, you're kind of allowed to do. They won't really talk about it, but if someone is like grabs an egg and rags it themselves, they all kind of think that's a cool thing and you can get away with it if you can actually make it happen, which very rarely would it ever happen. And he has the dream of doing this and he actually gets an egg, a young dragon, um, and starts raising it. But the story is about how he's going to have to raise it to go fight to the death for him to have a chance at freedom. Um, and his growing bond with it as he realized it, it is it really is intelligent. Um, beautiful story, kind of a brutal story, um, uh, both whimsical and realistic at the same time, which is really an interesting mix, but Jane is very good at that. So I recommend Dragon's Blood to you. If you've never read it, it's a wonderful book. Um, I want to bring us back to this concept that, uh, that Dan was talking about, because I find one of the things that is most difficult but most satisfying about world-building races is forcing myself to not let my races be one note. Yeah. Um, and this is really, it takes a lot of work um, because very naturally, and I think this is partially for shorthand reasons, it's also for bias reasons, but it's also, you know, it's very natural for us to go and we watch a movie and the movie has only an hour and a half to show us something. So it shows us this fantasy race and it's like, these are humans, but they have no emotions. Or these are humans, but they don't get metaphor. And that mm -hmm. works really well as a cool shorthand in a film. But as we are writing and we have more time to spend on these races and cultures, I think it's really important to make them more than one note. How do you do this? It is really, I think, very difficult. I, I think Ursula Le Guin did that in um, The Left Hand of Darkness yes. when she did the androgynous, I can't even say that word, but androgynous races. Um, I think that was a really cool way to deal with you know, not making them male or female or just exploring that entirely different way of doing it and the relationship between, you know, Estravan and Jen Lee A who came in. I, I thought that was very cool. So, you know, just to mm -hmm. take away, you know, the gender and, and do it in that way, I thought that was pretty well done. Yeah, yeah. Left Hand of Darkness is a masterwork in how to do this right. I, I suspect that some of the problems that we have in kind of making our fantasy and science fiction races feel rounded is because we come up with them to fill a role in our story first. And then it, we realize it's too much work to also give them all of this cultural baggage that is very different and very non-human. And so we're just like, well, they're, you know, it's just a Wookiee, you know, he's just like the quiet mechanic who never talks and is very hairy. Um, and so if you force yourself to do it, to actually go in and say, well, how is this going to change the way they interact? And this is something Howard has recently done with the, um, I can't remember the names of any of the aliens, but there's the ones with forearms. The Fobotter, yeah. Yes. And you kind of recently, I don't know if retcon's the right word, but you defined more solidly how they interact and the way that they require groups <laughs> um, and I just thought that was really interesting because all of a sudden 
they were more interesting and they were distinctly different from the humans and in, part in of a what I did, way. Part of what I did when I designed them and when I designed their culture, I gave them a history that involved a diaspora, diaspora, I don't know how to say that word. I know how to read it, read that word. They were scattered. And they have they have, you know, traveling merchant clans, warrior clans, whatever. Their culture is not monoculture. And sometimes when they connect with people of their own kind who have uh, done a better job of preserving their original culture, there is conflict. You know, you why your your naming conventions are all wrong. You know, why None of that made it into the story, mm-hmm. but all of that made it into my notes and yeah. what it let me do. And it's a silly thing. What it let me do was have characters whose names didn't fit the pattern of everybody else. And I knew that there was a rule behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew it fit. Well, and, and I think maybe the the big lesson for the read, for our listeners then is reading the comic it's not a treatise on fubater. What how do you yeah. how do you say it? Culture fubater. Yeah. But I could tell very clearly the strip at which oh Howard's changed the way this you know he's he's defined this culture all of a sudden. They feel yeah. like real people, even though you're not going out of your way to dump all the information on us. Let's go ahead and wrap it up here, uh, Mahatab. You are going to give us some homework. Yes. Um, Take one major historical event that occurred on Earth and set it in space with an alien race or races. Awesome. I'm very curious to hear what you guys or read what you guys come up with. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.